Good morning. The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the November 15, 2023 meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by Vice Chair Rafael Mendelman and Supervisor Asha Safayi. Uh, I see we're also joined by uh, our colleague from um, District 6, Supervisor Matt Dorsey. Thanks for being here. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I would like to thank uh, uh, SFGov TV today for broadcasting the, this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder to those in attendance to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices so as to not interrupt our proceedings. Should you have any documents to be included as part of the file, it should be uh, submitted to myself, the clerk. Uh, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up, and public comment is called. Please line up to speak on the west side of the chamber to your right, my left, along those curtains. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall, that's 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And due to the Thanksgiving holiday, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda of November 28th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And um, uh, before we call item number one, just wanted to... Um, as usual, the, the standard practice for this uh, committee is that uh, we will have items that um, presentation and for the items that have budget and legislative analyst report, we will go to the department presentation, the BLA report, and then we'll go to into questions and then public comments. And with that, Mr. Clerk, please call item number one. Yes, item number one is a hearing to request information on health insurance rate trends and its impact on the rate the city will pay on behalf of its employees in advance and consideration of the city's budget process. Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, colleagues, our first item is a hearing that I called for so that this body that is in charge with oversight and approving fiscal items and the city budget can be more informed as we begin to move into the budget process. Uh, as you probably recall, um, last year um, as we were going through the budget process, we also learned the escalated cost of our health benefits uh, by roughly about $18 million. Um, and that and we, while that we were able to really maintain that, um, uh, our budget and balance uh, during that time, I think it is critical for us to learn in advance about the trajectory uh, of the continuing escalated cost of health benefits. I learned as the Board of Supervisors appointee on the Health Services Board about one of our most important uh, roles as employers uh, is negotiating and providing health care for our current workers and retirees. Although we may not always realize, the rates that our health services system System negotiates of course have an impact on our budget uh, so I feel like it was important for, for us to understand the trends and in the market and what we can look forward to uh, I have asked the executive director of our health service uh, system uh, director Abby Yen to present and inform this body today but before she starts I would like to uh, you know uh, welcome our uh, colleague and current board's uh, appointee to the House Services Board, Supervisor Matt Dorsey, to make some additional remarks. Thank you so much, Chair Chan. Um, and good morning, committee members and everyone. 
Um, as you may know, I represent the Board of Supervisors on the Health Service System Board, whose Executive Director will be presenting to, this, to us uh, at this morning's hearing. And before we hand it off to um, Abby Yant, I would like to uh, commend her and the entire team um, at HSS for their great work. The uh, San Francisco Health Service System has a long history of delivering rates that align with um, industry trends that stay within the confines of our budget forecasts. This historical success reflects the organization's commitment to financial responsibility and adaptability within the dynamic healthcare landscape. Um, shortly, you'll hear more about the value of health benefits in the public sector and how city staff directly benefit from well-crafted labor contracts that stipulate a low employee premium cost share. Um, also, the broader impact of COVID-19 beyond the direct costs of care and how it's greatly impacted our uh, community and workforce. Um, our workforce has borne a significant burden over the past few years uh, with staff shortages in many of our departments and a growing demand for higher wages being front and center. And in response to the state's demands on its healthcare landscape, the phased introduction of a new minimum wage for healthcare workers at $25 an hour can add another uh, layer of complexity. These aren't easy times for anyone in the realm of healthcare coverage, uh, and that's not limited to San Francisco. Um, in September, a Reuters report noted that 2024 will mark the largest jump in healthcare costs nationwide in a decade. Um, as a member of the Health Service Board, I want to express my sincere appreciation for the strategies, decisive actions, and diligence exhibited by the leadership and staff at HHS. HSS. <clears throat> During uh, these challenging times, the proactive approach taken to address these healthcare industry trends demonstrates a commitment to the well-being of our community, our workforce, and uh, the continued success of our healthcare initiatives. Uh, and with that, through the chair, if I may, I'd like to join members in this committee in wel welcoming Abby Yant, uh, the executive director of the health service system. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Please go ahead, Director Yant. Um, uh, thank you, Supervisor Dorsey, um, Chair Chan, and uh, Supervisors Mandelman and Safai. Appreciate the time that you've set aside to do this as we've talked over the years. The, the cycle of the business cycle of HSS is very tight, and it's difficult to take a pause uh, and provide such a meaningful backdrop to the uh, very significant costs that come to before you in July. So I do appreciate that. I also want to acknowledge my team that's here because I sure as heck don't do this alone. Um, and I have Iftikhar Hussain, who's our CFO. Um, I have uh, Ray Gian, who is our COO. I have Mike Clark, who is our lead actuary and very well respected in the field. And um, Holly Lopez, my assistant and uh, board secretary. So thank you so much for having us here today. Um, we will try to be brief. We have spent quite a bit of time preparing and delivering trend, um, complex trend uh, reports and education to the Health Service Board. And uh, those are all recorded and online and are available as education sessions for our board. So we um, are happy to provide that linkage should anyone need to take a deeper dive. Um, today we're going to talk about um, HSS's uh, role, the current health plans that are offered, and the trends uh, that are going on uh, compared to benchmarks as well as the macro trends in the industry, uh, talk a little bit about what happened in 2024 and what we're doing at this point in time. As uh, Ben mentioned, the Health Service Board uh, does have a um, a strategic uh, plan, and uh, we have the goals of the first one being equity, uh, but we also are working on system delivery uh, 
components such as primary, improving primary care practice and expanding mental health services because of the increased demand for mental health. Uh, but affordable and sustainable is core to everything that we do. Um, and then we work to um, strive on operational excellence to keep our administrative cost um, under control. Um, you did, uh, our, uh, I do want to acknowledge the additional members of the Health Service Board. As you know, they're a combination of uh, elected and appointed uh, members. We have three members of the, uh, that are elected by other HSS members. members. And then we have, um, uh, in addition to Supervisor Dorsey, we have two appointees by the mayor and uh, one by the city controller. They do take their job very seriously and um, provide a lot of input to our um, agency and uh, it's very helpful. Uh, next slide, please. The um, medical plans that we uh, have now in place, uh, this is a slide from, from the deck that you saw in July at the full board meeting when you were gracious to approve all of the plans. And as you can see, there's pretty wide variation in the uh, uh, rates and the increases, or in some cases, um, I don't think on this slide reflects it, but they've, they've, some areas have stabilized and others jumped up next year, maybe more of the same, maybe totally different, uh, but we'll talk about the trends and how difficult it is to project what's going to happen. Slide eight. Yes. I, I, I don't know if it's better for, to wait until after your presentation if I had a question, but on slide six. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, I know that in the September meeting that there was a reference to, for the United Healthcare plan, um, there were some issues with UCSF Medical. I recall this was mentioned, and can you give us an update on whether that's what that Yeah, I wish is? I could tell you it was resolved, um, but it's not. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's a little complicated to explain, but let me give it a shot. Um, uh, it is the medical group at UCSF, it's not the medical system, and the medical group at USF, UCSF has, providing, has been providing care to members of United's manage, or, um, uh, Medicare, Medicare Advantage plan uh, for years, but they're not contracted with them. They're what's called a willing provider. So they're willing to provide the care to those patients and accept the payment that Medicare uh, sets, and that's the way it's operated forever. Um, they uh, chose this year to uh, seek a more a formal contract with United Healthcare. Um, they have not come to agreement on what the terms of that contract are, and so they, in the summer, we started getting complaints from some of our members that they were having difficulty getting an appointment. So that's when we found out about this. Um, and then uh, that kind of simmered down for a little while. I think they were trying to, both parties were trying to ne negotiate. We learned just yesterday that um, that negotiation has stalled and the medical group um, is going to um, continue seeing patients that are currently under their care, uh, but will not be accepting new patients unless they can reach um, an agreement with United on each individual case. Uh, which is is very administratively intensive and slow. Um, so it is, we're not in a good place right now, so we're encouraging both parties to go back to the table to try to resolve this, because we do have um, probably about 4,000 members that are under care at the um, university. And so we know that they will continue to receive care, but any new members 
uh, will not, uh, or will, will face some um, administrative challenges, which is not what we want to see at all. So we're working closely with both parties now. It's difficult. We're kind of in the middle and don't have the right kind of influence over either party. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> so the trends up until uh, 2024, you can see on this line graph, um, were, were fairly stable. The dark black line indicates what happened last year. Uh, the 10 county is that benchmark that we use and present every year, so that's been fairly stable. It usually lags behind our increases just because we get the publicly available data from them after it's made public. Um, so those, the historical trends have been like 5% or lower, um, and that's what we use to forecast for budget purposes. Uh, we revisit the trends every year. As I mentioned, we have our actuary services through Aon, and we um, are fairly confident in, in the forecast that we uh, set forth. In, however, in 24, that increase jumped up to 10.3% overall, which was $79 million increase. And, and in dollars, it was $31 million more than what we put in the budget, what we asked the mayors to put, put in the budget. So that's what kind of caused us all to um, sit back and try to figure out where we are. I mean, we, the health care premium increases generally lag behind inflation. So that part of it sort of makes sense. But the, it was to such a degree that when we looked at the next slide on the consumer price index, you can see how that jumped peaked in 22. And so if we're lagging by two years, that kind of makes sense. So the escalated medical drivers into 24 include, these are, includes a lot, but these four I want to mention, the healthcare wage and, and supply cost inflation uh, we're all pretty attuned to that. The workforce shortages, the cost of labor during the pandemic was um, very, very high with the use of travelers, nurses, et cetera. And subsequent to that, there have been uh, a number of factors that are pushing the healthcare wages up um, for a lot of good reasons. There's also an increase in the demand so the delivery of services, mental health and substance abuse, which we all are very supportive of, um, but it is an added cost when you provide more services. And then chronic conditions are on the rise uh, in, our pop in our population in particular, um, where people are living longer with um, these uh, conditions. And then COVID, as we know, the long COVID is becoming is some are considering it a chronic condition. I, it's a little soon to declare that, but that uh, is um, a, an ongoing cost. And then the cost shifting, I think many have heard about this over the years, but if the Medicaid dollars and the Medicare dollars don't cover the total cost of care, then the, sh the cost shifts go to the commercial insurances. 
And so that's yet another reason for these increases. If we look on slide 12 at healthcare wage inflation, you know, as, as the employ employment declined um, uh, from the start of the pandemic, and now we're seeing the elevated increases with the tight labor market. So it's just been a swing. Uh, and, and the demand is, is, uh, has come back. Um, the, there are contractual agreements. Kaiser uh, got their agreement settled to, um, that impacts the, the uh, cost of care going forward. Um, and then in September, the governor signed the bill to increase the minimum wage to $25 an hour for healthcare workers. Now there's a graduated table for that coming into effect, but again, contributes to the cost of healthcare. Uh, slide 13 just talks a little bit about nationwide. It's a $200 billion cost attributable to COVID by 2027. So while we have the pandemic under control, the disease itself is with us and will continue to contribute to the increased cost of health care. On slide 14, we talk a little bit about pharmacy. We could spend days talking about pharmacy. Specialty drugs and all the new miracle drugs that are coming to market, orphan drugs, et cetera, are really tremendous developments. They really treat cancer very effectively. There are just wonderful things to say about specialty drugs, except for the cost. They continue to escalate with no controls. Their utilization of traditional and brand, brand and, and generic drugs have always been the go-to to try to save money on pharmacy. We've got that locked down pretty good with our plans and our members. So there's really not significant savings on the horizon and, and using that as a tool for us. We'll be diligent about continuing our practice. The, the, we also saw uh, the last few years an opportunity to um, influence the use of what's called biosimilars uh, uh, for some drugs. It's, it's a, um, an adequate um, substitution that is much less costly. We've kind of pushed that to the mat and have very good practices uh, throughout our health um, plans. And then the most recent uh, are the GLP drugs uh, intended to treat diabetes, having the added benefit of uh, working for weight loss and uh, extremely high cost uh, that comes along with it. And um, it's, it's really not clear at this point in time, you know, what the cost of that will be should the individuals taking it be on it for a lifetime. So uh, there's a lot to be learned. Um, it's an exciting drug. It has some interesting side effects in um, some things that are currently being explored on how it may have some impact on addiction. Um, so there's, uh, it's, it's really quite a, a fascinating um, and exciting and problematic <laughs> um, situation. So we're, we're watching and listening to the experts as, as the utilization of this drug really explodes. Uh, we will all learn more. On slide 16, we talk a, uh, a lot about the, um, the health of our population, because clearly the healthier you are, the less costly you are from a health perspective, because you're not using the services. The primary reason for healthcare cost is the utilization of services. So that's not at all to imply that I, we don't want people to use services. We sure as heck do. 
but we wish <laughs> that we were all better at preventive services so that we could either delay the onset of chronic illnesses or perhaps not even succumb to them at all. So that's, uh, that is very much um, uh, top of mind as we look at our population and what the risks are. And the sicker your population is, the higher the cost, and the, the higher the utilization is, the higher the cost of the insurance premium. So that's pretty logical. On slide 17, too, we see in the insured population, just as I know you've heard, I'm sure, from the health department and others on, on um, Medicare, Medi-Medi, Medi-Cal uh, um, populations, um, it's a small percentage of the people that drive most of the cost. Um, and in, in commercial insurance, we too look at the social determinants of health and consider whether um, housing and transportation and other um, uh, needs influence their care um, and their health. And so we're working, uh, the health industry itself is grappling with how to address that in the insured population. On slide 18, it's a, a, just sort of a summary slide of, again, um, what occurred last year, you know, the cost inflation uh, projection used by Kaiser to set their HMO rates, both we, both for the active employees and, and early retirees. The Blue Shield um, elevation was uh, really more due to the increased high risk of the population and the utilization of their services. The UHC Medi Medicare Advantage uh, product that we ta just talked about um, their experience, let me see if I can get this clear, CMS, uh, Medicare, 11,000 people a day are aging into Medicare. And so they have, uh, they year over year do an increase in payment to their um, plans. This past year they began a process of ratcheting down that increase. So it's still going up, but not like it did. So the plans that rely on Medicare dollars from CMS uh, didn't uh, had to they adjusted for that lack of income from CMS by increasing their rates. So that's that is um, uh, a, a challenge for the entire Medicare market. Uh, and it's a shifting that CMS is being very diligent about how they go about this. But they, they have projected the challenge for CMS dollars through 2031, which is when the last of the baby boomers age into Medicare. So this is not a phenomena that's going to go away. We're going to be, you know, in the business, if we're in the business of of buying retiree health, which is primarily Medicare, this is something we will see year over year as we go forward. Simply, it's, it's simply, be, simply because there's more people entering Medicare. So the Kaiser uh, Medicare, they have that challenge, but they also, uh, the, the way that the budgets are administer both within Kaiser and the federal government are always a little bit out of sync and so we see a little bit of a seesaw effect every year with Kaiser where one year it's higher and the next year it's lower because they have to adjust based on the, the Medicare dollars and it, their, their clock doesn't sync well with ours I think is the best way to say that. The um, 
Blue Shield products, uh, there's been uh, some increase in, in uh, cost claim experience, and uh, we've added resources to help with the care management, because uh, that often is a big factor in these costly cases that things get managed well, so that uh, patients can seek care in lower levels of care. We did, we did, we saw a big drop in ER utilization at the height of the pandemic, uh, but boy, it's back. And that's not necessarily a good thing. It's, it's an expensive place to get care if you can't get it at your physician's office or your urgent care. That's one thing, but if you haven't tried those, then it's quite another. So we, we're working with all the plans to help our members recognize uh, where to get services and to seek emergencies uh, departments when needed, but that's not always the case. Um, HealthNet Canopy Care HMO, it's one of our smaller plans. Uh, they do have a um, lower risk population um, and they have a very physician-led care management approach. So that's uh, another product uh, along with the trio that are both um, pretty reasonably priced. Um, and I will say that one of the challenges that we have with our um, very generous um, uh, agreements with the labor unions on how the share of costs between the employer and the employee is set. The, the challenge with that is if we have a lower cost plan, the member isn't necessarily going to jump to it because they're going to save dollars because the dollars in their take-home pay is pretty small and they, they don't you know, why bother, you know, it's, it's so, it's, it is a challenge to try to encourage our members to go to lower cost plans and one that we continue to seek um, new ideas on how to do that because it's, it's an obvious um, way to help people save money and the system to save money. So next slide, Holly, I think is the Medicare plan and I think we spoke to that already. So what are we doing? These are three of the major um, uh, initiatives that we have underway where we're really working closely with Kaiser to understand um, how the uh, increase in the premiums this year are covering the cost of the actual utilization because um, this is where we were um, out of step, I think, last year where we didn't, uh, Kaiser was uh, using an, um, an additional methodology uh, and uh, we normally look back at the utilization of services, but Kaiser was also setting their budget based on future cost, which we understand the wage uh, increases that they have underway, but we also um, are concerned that we can't continue that year over year increase that we experienced last year. The Blue Shield Access and HMO, um, as I mentioned early on, one of our strategic initiatives is really looking at primary care and seeing how we can strengthen that because a strong primary care practice can really save money uh, because they can manage a lot, they can manage the specialty referrals, they can, with the right kind of care management and social s services report and behavioral health, they can really um, help uh, help the member and uh, reduce the cost. So we are we have a number of partners that we're working with and um, are, are excited that this is finally starting to move and uh, we'll, if, But it'll be an industry-wide shift if we are successful 
And then I mentioned to you the um, MAPPO, the United Product last year, those cost increases were directly related to the shifting of the Medicare dollars from the federal government. So those are the primary actions. And under underlying all of that is our, uh, we, we can't do anything alone. Uh, I learned very early on in this job that as big as our membership is, it's not big enough. So we partner where we can uh, with Covered California and CalPERS, looking at our cost and quality initiatives that are very much part of the primary care initiatives. I think that's very benef it's certainly beneficial to us and um, they appreciate our participation as well. Um, so we have a, a lot of partners there. And then um, the next slide is really looking at the near-term focuses. The majority of the healthcare spend is on fully insured plans. Uh, HMOs, uh, United Healthcare, based on enrollment distribution. We continue to really partner with these organizations to understand where these rates are and so that we have less of the surprise going forward and can keep the rates um, sustainable uh, for us as an employer. Keeping in mind that we also, in addition to the city, we also buy insurance for the school district, city college, and the courts. And um, their challenges in many ways are even greater than the city's. So I think it's important that we recognize our obligation to all our employers. Uh, and so I do appreciate uh, you having, I put the clock slide in the deck just to reemphasize where we are in the cycle. We're in this fourth quarter where we're actually about to initiate uh, the renewal letters where we request their proposals and uh, are very specific about what we're looking for. Uh, and we're also, as of last Friday, um, announced that we're doing um, a, a competitive bid, an RFP, for our Medicare, um, Medicare, Medicare, Medicare Advantage plan. Um, so that is going out to the market, and we're we'll, we'll hopeful that we will see a cost reduction in that product as well. So in summation, we'll continue to elevate our strategic goals, monitor the data from the plans, uh, hone our preliminary renewal forecast, uh, communicate with the health plans on an ongoing basis, especially uh, with those that have multiple provider contracts, whether it be with physician groups like the UCSF Medical Group or uh, health systems. Promote plans where the financial or service improvements are expected and uh, partner with plans that are strategically aligned um, towards market value-driven care. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the time and the presentation. I uh, want to quickly go back to um, slide 16 and to help us understand better um, just the overall cost and spending for us. Um, right now, here's in the slide 16 uh, indicating that uh, in crisis members are 2% and out of which, you know, cost us 79% uh, of the spending. And that 2% is for the all-enrolled members. So if we can do a quick sort of like a number translation, meaning a 2% of all-enrolled members is how many individuals? And then a 79% of the cost and in dollars. Mike Clark, actuary. 
Um, so about 2% of total enrolled members, there's about 126,000 mm -hmm. total covered lives. Um, so 2% would be approximately 2,500. And then the um, total cost of um, kind of the net cost of the city, I think is approximately, um, for the medical plans uh, specifically, approximately 800 million. And so 79% of that would be about 640 million. So for the 2,500 individuals, I, I, sorry, I just want to make sure that I understand the, the number correctly. So for the 2%, which is equate to about 2,500 individuals, and that is a, over $600 million of cost? Um, in total. Now, this would also be a combination of fully insured plans where that 2 and 79 um, integrates into the overall premium. So these um, statistics are based on actual utilization, which does present in the Blue Shield HMOs, the health net plans, because those are self-funded in the PPO. Uh, the fully insured plans would have the same dynamic, but the healthcare rate paid by the city would be the same no matter where someone would fall on the spectrum. I mean, that, that's a quite a significant, uh, just having 2,500 individuals in crisis and the cost is 79% of, of what we're spending. I just want to, again, understand just numbers of people and in dollars, and that's very helpful. I really appreciate it. I also appreciate that you're doing the math on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I then now want to go into, if I may, is the Medicare retirees, you know, um, reimbursements, learning that C uh, CMS has lower its rates, and again, you know, learning that 11,000 people per day continue to actually enroll and require the Medicare um, uh, spending it's it's significant and my assumption is that number is a national number of a daily for the cms uh, for reimbursement for medicare uh, if i understand that correctly typically that it seems to me that the averaging rate of reimbursement is about 75 percent of reimbursement rate for medicare and that's no more than 80 percent and consistently the city like will you know throughout and and will be distributing or supporting and subsidizing that remaining of those 15% um, or more. And so in this case, that when you mentioned in your presentations, this goes back referencing slide 18, that you have mentioned, you know, just seeing that the Medicare, because the CMS has now lowering um, their reimbursement, um, could you just elaborate what does that mean in terms of percentage a bit more specific uh, with its existing reimbursement versus the new reimbursement rate. Yeah, actually, if I could ask you to pivot to the next slide. Thank you, yeah. Um, so this Thank was you. a chart that we shared with the Health Service Board during the June renewal cycle. And what you see here is the overall cost of the plan. So if you just look at the cost and utilization going up 6%, typical for a national trend. What transpired into this cycle was there were three different elements that led to the CMS increase being lower than in years past. In years past, on this slide, the CMS increase would have also been approximately 6%. But there were changes in reimbursement methodology that took place for 2024 that brought that um, CMS funding increase down to 3.2%. 
so you can see here in the blue part of the bar, the majority of the plan cost is funded by the federal government and that continues to be so. But what happens is the premium then that are cascaded to the um, city employers is magnified with an increase. So it's essentially, it's an algebra difference between the 6% total, the 3.2% on the majority of the funding that led to the 15% premium increase uh, that you see in the orange bars. And so with that total plan cost of 6%, what does that equate to in terms of dollar amount for us? Um, so the total cost of the plan increased approximately 18 to 20 million uh, for the UHC uh, Medicare Advantage plan from 2023 to 2024. Yeah, and then, and, and so this, now I'm gonna add the third layer to this uh, two parts of these question, questions is that, you know, identifying all enroll members and understanding just the uh, portion of which that is actually uh, Medicare and retiree of the all enroll member. And then, you know, just to, because I think Director Yant made a really good point, and it's like, as I'm learning as well through this process, and thank you so much for spending time with me, you know, before, prior to this hearing, so that I am prepared and, and educated in this, uh, in, within this context, is that, you know, identifying that Medicare is going to be continuing, that, you know, this trend of, of lowering its reimbursement rate this is not gonna go away and we will continue to have retirees and then they're gonna continue. I think that it will be really helpful um, to understand, if not today, but at some point, to understand the trajectory of the increase of number of members that we see in retiree and the trajectory of the reimbursement rate of from CMS for Medicare. I think that it, it will help us, at least this body, I think also the city itself, to be able to understand the trajectory of budget for healthcare and health services benefits for our workers. Um, I think that with that is uh, one more key element to consider in our workforce, both in negotiations and conversations, but also when, as we start thinking about hiring and, um, you know, just in our entire workforce, that this is actually part of the calculation of the cost um, of doing business, so to speak, for the city, to make sure that when we continue these conversations, uh, we, we, we're mindful of the cost, not just for this one budget cycle, but the trajectory of it. Um, so if there's a slide right now you can point me to, I would appreciate, but if not, I would look forward to seeing that information. Yeah, and actually, the. F our request for a proposal that will be going out next month for the UHC Medicare Advantage plan, uh, the PPO plan, will help provide a lot of information to us about what the different bidders are projecting for 2025 rates and beyond. Uh, so I appreciate the question and I appreciate the proactivity of SFHSS uh, by proceeding with this request for proposal initiative. Thank you, I, and I just want to concur with um, Supervisor Dorsey's earlier comment at the opening remarks that, you know, we really are grateful to your team and your team's work, uh, Director Yant, and um, it's, it, today it's, it's a conversation that we can have transparency and just give us an opportunity to, uh, you know, not for those of us did not and uh, are not serve, you know, as an appointee on the board and having that 
information early on as we continue to think about uh, the budget. Um, and also just appreciate that you having a foresight uh, you know, you know, to, to say this is something that this portion of Medicare for retiree benefits we would like to see an RFP so that we actually have the, at least under, we may not change it, who knows, but then at least we have the information from the market directly that allow us to have um, better decisions. Um, I really appreciate the effort and the work. Thank you so much. I don't uh, see any name on the roster at the moment, and uh, I think that we will go to public comments for this. Thank you. Yes, we now invite <clears throat> members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item to line up um, right along those windows. And uh, please come forward to the lectern, and all speakers will have two minutes to speak. Good morning. If you want to understand, uh, if I may, if you want to understand the, the nonsense in between health and money, you first have to uh, realize finally, that health is not for sale. Health is not for sale. The reason why it's not for sale, let's say, anymore, it's because it's direct, directly connected with your reason for being, which is to be happy. So happiness, your reason for being, is not for sale. It's been for sale, yes, by mistake, for too long now in the history of our, ourselves. I mean. So that's it. So stop. Please, because this is not the future. If you keep trying try, I mean, to sell health and make a profit of it, from it, which is worse, obviously, you're done. You are not part of the future. We are here to change what's going on today. I'm serious. So stop. Thank you much for your comments. And seeing no further speakers, Madam Chair. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Um, colleagues, I would like to uh, make the motion to uh, file this hearing. I am uh, just uh, thankful that everyone uh, took this opportunity, and thank you, Super Supervisor Dorsey, for being uh, here with us today so that we have um, now some information in advance, uh, us going to the budget to ha uh, understand that the health benefits cost to the city um, as we may continue to make budgetary decision. And with that, um, a roll call to file the hearing. And on that motion, uh, that this hearing be heard and filed. Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. And Mr. Clark, please call item number two. Yes, item number two. Is a hearing to consider the citywide uh, project labor agreement that was executed, uh, the annual reports for fiscal years 2020 to 2021, 2021 to 2022, and 2022 to 2023 that highlight the efforts, accomplishments, and challenges encountered, and the preliminary high-level methodology developed to evaluate whether the PLA has promoted the efficient, economical, and timely completion of PLA-covered projects, the cost of covered projects, and the PLA's impact on local business enterprises and the local workforce. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And uh, this is the item sponsored by Supervisor Safai. Thank you, um, Chair. If it's okay with you, I'd like to uh, continue this item to the December 6th uh, meeting. I just need a, some of the individuals that will be involved in asking questions and presenting need a little bit more time. Understood. And uh, with that, and uh, should we go to public comments on this item for the continuance of this hearing?
Yes, we now invite members of the public who are joining us today who wish to speak on the continuance of uh, this hearing on item number two. Uh, please come forward to the lectern. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed and would like to make the motion to contain this item to December, uh, December 6th. Want to confirm the date is correct? correct. Our December 6th hearing. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to continue this hearing to the 12th, uh, yes, to the December 6th meeting of this committee, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Please call item number three. Yes, item number three is an ordinance amending the Business and Tax Regulations Code to broaden the exemption from the increased transfer tax rates when the consideration or value of the interest or property conveyed uh, equals or exceeds five million for transfers of certain rent-restricted affordable housing, uh, applying the exemption retroactively to transfers occurring on or after January 1st, 2017 and extending the exemption through December 31st, 2030 and affirming the planning department's determination under CEQA. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clark. And uh, just want to acknowledge that Supervisor Dean Preston, who's the sponsor of this legislation, is here. And um, would you like to with, open with the open uh, <laughs> open with the remarks? Thank you, Chair Chan, and uh, thank you to you and the committee for hearing this uh, today. And the item before the committee is a, an ordinance to further a goal that I know every member of uh, this committee and this Board of Supervisors believes in, which is getting more affordable housing in San Francisco. Um, the ordinance seeks to achieve this goal um, by further exempting affordable housing and certain transactions related to affordable housing financing. Um, as well as uh, reduce the fees and penalties uh, for previous transfer tax assessments for affordable housing providers. Um, this effort's related to our city's transfer tax um, and the efforts over the past 15 years to increase uh, the transfer tax rate, uh, most recently in 2020 with the ballot measure that I authored, Prop I, which doubled the tax for the highest value properties, those assessed at $10 million or more. Um, the administrative code provides the board with authority to exempt transfers of rent-restricted affordable housing from these transfer tax increases. Um, in 2019, the board exempted transfers of property under the community right to purchase COPA uh, from these increases. In 2021, uh, the board passed uh, our ordinance that applied uh, to affordable housing transactions valued at $5 million or more, effectively uh, reducing the transfer tax for those properties to 0.75%. Uh, the ordinance uh, before you today uh, builds on the 2021 trailing legislation effort to ensure that the intended exemptions apply to affordable housing providers. Um, briefly, what the ordinance actually does uh, is uh, extend the existing exemption by six and a half years through December 31, 2030, uh, and apply the exemption retroactively to transfers occurring since January 1, 2017, or four years before the existing exemption start date. Uh, this helps provide clarity going forward by extending out the existing exemption as well as relief for tax bills that affordable housing providers did not anticipate um, from previous years. The ordinance also broadens the exemption to allow for properties with at least 90% of residential 
uh, designated rent restriction, restricted affordable housing units, allowing them to qualify. This provides some latitude for affordable housing projects that include units, for example, for on-site managers, uh, which typically may not be uh, rent restricted, but are still part of what's clearly an affordable housing uh, project. Uh, the ordinance also clarifies that, that certain transactions, including where a limited partner exits the partnership around year 15, so-called year 15 exits, um, thus changing the ownership structure at that time, um, will not trigger uh, the, the tax and will not be subject to it. Uh, pursuant to the, the ordinance. The ordinance also further refines the process for qualifying for the affordable housing exemption by providing a timeline for qualifying for a welfare exemption under Section 214. Um, and lastly, the ordinance waives all penalties and interest on transfer taxes imposed on the transactions that qualify for the exemption retroactively, including penalties and interests applied to the portion of the tax not subject to the exemption. So taken as a whole, uh, colleagues, these changes help ensure we are extending relief to affordable housing providers to the extent that our code uh, allows and that the voters have allowed, um, and ensuring that rather than uh, penalizing providers, we are waiving penalties and returning funds to providers so that they can move forward and build uh, more affordable housing. Um, getting this balance right has taken a significant amount of time and effort, and I really want to sincerely thank the uh, brain trust of advocates uh, and practitioners uh, who have helped shape this ordinance. Uh, there are many, um, but I especially want to thank John Avalos from the Council of Community Housing Organizations and Katie Lamont from the Tenderloin uh, Neighborhood Development Corporation for sharing their expertise. Uh, I also want to thank department staff for working through the many drafts and thinking through uh, the implementation uh, of this, and that includes she uh, Sheila Nicolopoulos, Lydia Ely, and Jackie Sue at um, uh, Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, uh, Holly Lung, uh, Juan Carlos Cancino, and Kurt Fuchs from the Assessor Recorder's Office, uh, the City Attorney's Office, uh, including and especially Scott Ryber, Carol uh, Ruert, and uh, Keith Nagiyama, as well as uh, Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, uh, and my Chief of Staff, Kyle Smealy, uh, for all his work on this. So with that, I uh, want to thank you, Chair Chan, for your co-sponsorship co of this measure um, and ask that the committee forward this item with a positive recommendation to the full board. And in the event there are questions, I understand that staff from MoCD is here, uh, as well as uh, the Assessor Recorder's Office and, of course, the BLA. Uh, and I will remain, and hopefully between all those folks, we'll be able to answer any questions the committee has. Thank you very much. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Uh, good morning, Supervisors. Nick Bernard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. Item three is an ordinance that uh, amends the Business Tax and Regulations Code to accomplish a couple uh, things. One is that um, it extends the existing exemption for affordable housing projects from increases in transfer taxes from the current expiration date of June 2024 through December 2023, and then also extends the uh, exemption retroactively back to January 2017, and also expands the definition of affordable housing. Uh, we detail the uh, fiscal impact on pages five and six of our report. 
which we estimate to be between 30 and $45 million in reduced general fund revenues over the entire period back to 2017 through 2030. Uh, that may be an underestimate because it doesn't account for the expanded definition of affordable housing and our analysis is really based on um, existing transactions that use the uh, current definition of affordable housing. Um, we do consider approval to be a policy matter for the board. This is a reduction in general fund revenues, uh, but with the trade-off being that there's additional funding for affordable housing operators, some of that money may flow to the city um, through if the city has loans on those projects and may recover um, the, the tax savings through its residual receipt policy. Thank you. Um, before I call on Vice Chair Mendelman, I just want to uh, make brief remarks uh, as a co-sponsor of this legislation that I, I um, in fact, uh, appreciate the budget and legislative analyst report. I do concur, though, with the uh, evaluation that or the analysis that we actually underestimate um, the cost to the general fund. Uh, anticipating that, and which I hope, you know, the passage of both the $300 million housing bond for affordable housing that is in March, as well as the potential regional bond, uh, regional affordable housing bond this coming November in 2024. Um, um, that I, I do hope that we will see more and more affordable housing projects in the city, uh, in San Francisco. And, um, and so that also probably means the potential of uh, greater loss of uh, general fund uh, when we provide the lower, um, or this exemption and the lower uh, bracket, uh, so to speak, for transfer tax uh, for affordable housing project. Um, but I do also believe that um, the fund will end up contributing back to um, being able to build affordable housing. Uh, typically, if I understand correctly, and the mayor's office of housing can correct me if I'm wrong on this and raise your hand, um, that we do provide loans to our uh, nonprofit uh, affordable housing developers and so that with that you know uh, that part of that loan and, and funding that eventually is city loan and that also uh, contribute to the transfer tax and uh, by doing so uh, we we now then have more dollars that can go further um, it's the reason why I'm a co-sponsor of this legislation I think at the end of the day the benefit is the fact that the city can build more housing and not just any housing but most importantly crucially you know the affordable housing 46,000 units that apparently we need to build by 2030 demanded by the State Department um, with that uh, Vice Chair Mandelman thank you Chair Chan and uh, thank you Supervisor Preston, for your work on this, um, it uh, seems uh, like a modest, very modest step towards reaching our tens of thousands of units that we need to of affordable housing, and um, I think it's a good thing to do, and I would like to be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you so much. Um, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Um, appreciate the thoughtfulness that went into this. I think it's important to understand that sometimes there can be a little bit of a deterrent when it comes to where we are in a particular environment. So we want to remove some of those barriers. And I think it's, this is a good targeted way to do that, specifically on a programs that have been successful. And so I think that this is a continuation, right? This is an extension of what something that's already been there um, that I think has been proven to be helpful. And I think one of the most important things that you said, and I've, I've, I've heard from folks that have called in and support is that 
This allows that money to then stay within the universe of affordable housing providers to invest back in to their properties, into providing services, and or building more affordable housing, which I think is really important. So I, I am supportive of this and would also like to be added as a co-sponsor. Thank you. And there you go, Supervisor Preston. Uh, Thank you all. <laughs> and uh, with that, then let's go to public comments on this item. Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item to line up now. And uh, yes, uh, come forward to the lectern and I'll start your time. <clears throat> Good morning, John Avalos from the Council of Community Housing Organizations. Uh, first off, Chuchu would like to thank Supervisor Preston and his staff, Kyle Smealy, for working with all parties on this legislation, working with the Assessor's Office and Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Housing Organizations. That collaboration was really great and important to do to get this legislation right. This, or, I also want to thank the co-sponsors as well of the legislation, Supervisor Chan, Mandelman, and Safai. <clears throat> this, this ordinance addresses voter-approved legislation that increased San Francisco's real estate transfer tax and inadvertently created unexpected consequences for nonprofit housing developers who formed temporary limited partnerships to, fi to finance the production and rehabilitation of affordable housing, offering a public good, stable and affordable housing as a benefit to low-income residents and to the well-being of all San Franciscans. After 2017, affordable housing organizations like the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation and Chinatown Community Development Center and many others must use their limited and stretched affordable housing dollars to pay hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in new transfer taxes as their partnerships dissolve after the 15-year buyouts. The result is a huge financial burden to nonprofit housers with real impacts to the operations of San Francisco's affordable housing stock that is essential to the well-being and well-management of affordable housing residents. Uh, for the city to claw back precious dollars for an application of the real estate transfer tax that was never intended only exacerbates the lack of coherency between prioritizing the city's affordable housing goals and the city's need for solvency. The budget analyst cost us out as 30 to 45 million between 2017 and 2030 uh, because this tax increase draws down precious public funds needed for the operation of affordable housing. The loss of general fund monies pales in comparison to the greater public good to affordably house low-income San Franciscans. Uh, this uh, relieves a lot of pressure on, on nonprofit housing organizations uh, and will actually make tenants' lives a lot better. And uh, I urge you to support this legislation. Thank you very much. Thank you, and just want to acknowledge that's uh, former Supervisor John Avalos. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, uh, John Avalos, for joining us today. Next speaker, please. Good morning, Supervisors. Kevin Kitching of Mission Housing. Well, John Avalos covered the waterfront there, so I can't, I can't do much better than that except to say thank you. Um, I want to thank Mayor's Office of Housing staff, Jackie So, De uh, Deputy Director Ely. Um, thank you for this precise look back. Thank you for the sunset provision. Thank you for good po public policy on this. And um, thank you for helping our affordable housing providers and their residents. Thank you. Thank you much for your comments. If we have any more speakers. Hi, good morning, Chair um, Chan, Supervisors Mandelman, and Safai. I'm also Supervisor Preston. I just want to thank uh, Supervisor Preston's office, um, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, um, the Tax Assessor's Office, everyone, and all of my colleagues at Chuchu and the leadership at Chuchu for really um, organizing everyone around this issue. I know it's very arcane, it's not sexy, 
and it's incredibly important and impactful to housing providers working across San Francisco, especially in these challenging times. So I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, and I forgot to identify myself. I apologize. My name is Katie Lamont. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at TNDC, Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. Thank you. Thank you much, Katie Lamont. Next Good morning, please. Good morning, Supervisors. I just want to echo my appreciation for your hard work on this and the work of the Choo Choo staff and Katie Lamont uh, to make this happen. Supervisor Preston, your staff's office has been, or your, your office staff has been incredibly helpful on this, and we're very supportive of the item. Thank you. The only just little problem is that you still haven't defined affordable. You need to define it with, otherwise, whether you're talking about budget all the time, money, money, money. So you define what affordable means. Hello? It's ABC, isn't it? Uh, you are doing it? Okay, so say it, since you talk about numbers. And thank you, Terry Phil. Okay, last call for speakers on this item. Madam Chair, I see no further speakers. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed, and colleagues would like to move this item to full board with recommendation, and with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion, uh, to forward this ordinance to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Please call item number four. Item number four is a resolution authorizing the Recreation and Park Department to accept and expend up to $3.9 million in grant funding from the California Department of Parks and Recreation for the Buchanan Mall project to enter into a grant contract with the California Department of Parks and Recreation that required that RPD maintain the park as a public open space in perpetuity to record a declaration of restrictions on the Buchanan Mall property, providing notice of these restrictions, and to authorize the general manager to enter into modifications or amendments to the grant contract that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the contract or this resolution. Madam Chair. Thank you. And today we have Tony Moran from uh, SF Rec and Park. The floor is yours. Thank you so much for being here. Um, good morning, Chairperson Chan and committee members. The item you have before you is a resolution to approve $3.9 million grant from the California State Parks Department for the Buchanan Mall Project. This legislation also allows the Recreation and Park Department to enter into an agreement with the California State Parks Department to make modifications that are necessary to deliver the project and also um, to file a deed restriction on the park parcels that comprise Buchanan Mall. The, um, a little background, the Buchanan Mall is a five-block pedestrian mall between Eddy Street and Grove Street, located in the Western Edition neighborhood. The city and county of San Francisco owns all the park parcels that comprise the park, and it is operated and maintained by the Recreation and Park Department. The park was constructed in the early 80s um, as part of a redevelopment when this portion of Buchanan Mall was Buchanan Street was closed to vehicles. They built a park space that included green spaces, three playgrounds, a half of a basketball court, and some asphalt, lots of asphalt um, paths. Currently, there's been some upgrades and the site's been maintained, but there hasn't been major improvements to this park for quite a while, and it currently doesn't really provide the services that the surrounding community um, need for recreation. 
the, um, also, this project is surrounded on all sides by subsidized housing and senior housing, which represents 394 households. The, um, within a half mile radius of the park, there are approximately 30,000 residents with almost 5,000 individuals living in poverty, 3,000 youth, 5,500 seniors, and 7,000 um, individuals without access to vehicles. This makes having this park space improved even more important so that they can walk to the, their nearest park. In 2014, the um, community-based organizations, Green Streets and Citizen Film, started collaborating with the Trust for Public Land, the Recreation and Park Department, and the Exploratorium to develop an outreach program for the community. So after many, many meetings, the community um, developed what is known as the Butacana Mall Vision Statement. And since that point, we have been, not just the Recreation Park Department, but the project partners have been securing grant funding for this project. This, pro this grant that I'm presenting today is one that was identified in our funding strategy. We applied for this round five outdoor recreation legacy partnership grant, and it will make improvements to two of the park blocks. The grant was awarded about a year ago, and we are now in the process of securing a grant contract. We expect to have it this week or next. And after approval from the Board of Supervisors, we will execute the contract with your approval. As a condition, um, I just want to uh, reiterate that we will need to file a deed restriction protecting the property as public outdoor recreation space in perpetuity. This is a very common requirement for this federal grant program. So in closing, I am asking for the Budget and Finance Committee to make a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors to authorize our department to accept and expend the grant to authorize the general manager to enter into the grant agreement with the state of California and to file the deed restriction, or excuse me, the declaration of restriction on the park parcels. I'm available if you have any questions. Item four is a resolution that would allow the Recreation and Parks Department to accept a grant from the State Department of Parks and Recreation. The grant is uh, $3.9 million and requires a one-to-one -one match from the city. As we detail on page 10 of our report, that match will be met by um, an SFPUC green infrastructure grant, uh, market activity, development impact fees, um, and then a, a, a separate state grant um, from the California State Department of Parks and Recreation. The grant will help fund uh, renovation of two of five blocks of the Buchanan Mall. We recommend approval of item four. Thank you. Um, Buchanan Mall is such a critical space and it's really in need of love and care and improvement. So improvements and I, I just really appreciate that uh, Rec and Park has actually dedicated its uh, time to and resources to make sure that we continue to keep up with the improvements. And it's just really good to see how that area has continued to change. Um, but I also think that Buchanan will also um, connect the neighborhood in a much uh, vibrant and uh, great, just a much better way uh, to see how all the residential units are connected through that space. So with that, uh, let's go to public comments. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, members of the public who have joined us today who wish to comment on this resolution, uh, please line up. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Seeing no public comment, and public comment is now closed. And uh, Vice Chair Mandelman. Uh, thanks, Madam Chair. I would like to be added as co-sponsor. With that, thank you. And uh, let's, uh, sorry. And, uh, and also Supervisor Safai as a co-sponsor, and uh, want to acknowledge that. And then with that, I would like, colleagues, I would like to uh, move this item to full board with recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, I, Member Safai. Safai, I, Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, I. We have three ayes. Thank you, and the motion passes. And uh, Mr. Clerk, please call item five, six, and seven together. Yes, items five, six, and seven are resolutions approving the following and authorizing the, exec the executive director of the port to enter into amendments or modifications to the matters that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the respective resolutions. Item five, approve certain amendments to the form of the parcel lease between the port and seawall lot uh, 337 Associates, uh, LLC, uh, a subsidiary agreement under the uh, disposition and development agreement for the Mission Rock project, approving certain amendments to the leases for parcel A, parcel B, parcel F, and parcel G with uh, affiliates of the developer and adopting findings under CEQA. Item six and seven approves port commission leases with the following effective upon approval of their respective resolutions. Item number six is with Recology San Francisco, located at Pier 96 for approximately 196,000 square feet of shed, out building and loading dock space and approximately 252,000 square feet of paved land and yard space, which will initially generated, uh, generate revenue to the port of approximately uh, 369.5 thousand per month for a term of approximately 74 months and adopting findings under CEQA. Item number seven is with Anderson Enterprises Incorporated, um, located at Pier 68 and 70 Shipyard for approximately 116,000 square feet of paved land and 2,000 square feet of sh shed space for an initial monthly rent of approximately 67,000 in a term of three years with three mutually agreeable one-year extension options. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clark. And with that, we have, sorry, I think uh, Josh Keen, Waterfront Development Director. Great, thank you, Chair Chan, and good morning, Supervisors. Um, thanks for calling these all together. This is gonna be a three-part. I'm gonna take the first item and then we're gonna do three series of very brief presentations with my other colleagues from the real estate group. Um, so I'll go super quick on this one just because it's, this is more of a technical amendment and a clarification. Um, I will answer any questions if you have about Mission Rock. We kind of covered it two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go through that uh, in the base presentation. But basically what this is, is this is an amendment to the parcel leases that we have at Mission Rock, which is an agreement between the port and the vertical developers. There are currently four buildings that have active parcel leases, which are buildings A and F. One is the Canyon, which is the residential building that's open now and currently leasing, and Parcel F, which is also a residential building that will be opening next summer, uh, both with affordable components inclusionary on site, uh, close to 40%. And then the other one is the visa, future visa headquarters, which they'll be occupying early next year. And there's also a, a future office and life science building, 
What this is doing is amending the parcel lease to reflect the original intent of the parties, the first of which was, one, it was an error in the drafting issue, um, and then the other two were really just clarifications from the port's perspective, but we just wanted to put them in here too. And what these all pertain to, um, it's, just, it's all on the financing side, it's really about how the port participates, which is a common function in our development deals where when there is a sale for profit or there is a trans or is a refinance that is netting pro uh, proceeds to the project, the port gets a small percentage of that on an ongoing basis. These events do not happen very regularly, um, but they, they do happen, especially in the early stages when we're refinancing. So just on the basic level, and I'm happy to explain anything more, what we're essentially doing is clarifying the base under which the, the port's participation will be calculated. And what we're saying is we participate after any existing debt has been paid off, which is a, that's the normal way to do it. It wasn't drafted like that. Um, to how we set the purchase price, it's, it's, it's established in a competitive environment in a very unlikely event of a foreclosure where usually is the distressed value. We do not want to reset the value into that unlikely scenario. So it's really just clarifying that. And then on this project, we have a jobs housing equivalency fee, which is similar to the jobs housing linkage fee that we all that we use in general impact fee world. Um, but what this does is clarify that the office buildings who actually paid money to the residential buildings to help subsidize the high levels of affordability, they get credit for that when they're calculating the percent the participation in these future sales. So that's all I have on there. Um, happy to go into any questions about these parcel leases or the Mission Rock project, if helpful. Thank you, not at this moment. We appreciate it. And let's go to item uh, six and seven, which both have uh, BLA report. So let's go to item six for uh, department presentation and then go to BLA report and then following. So good morning, Chair Chan, Supervisors Mendelman and Safaid. I'm Kimberly Beal, Assistant Deputy Director for Real Estate with the Port. I want to thank my colleague Josh Keen for his assistance with the slides. Before you is a six-year lease covering an outbuilding land and shed space for use for a recycle center operations with Recology San Francisco. Recology is an existing port tenant at Pier 96 near Amador. The proposed lease was approved unanimously by the Port Commission on October 10th. Next slide, please. As background, the existing lease was for a term of 25 years. The lease expired on July 31st of this year and tenancy is currently month to month. The base rent was increased August 1st to $369,500 following appraisal. The new lease before you is for approximately six years with a monthly base rent of $369,500 per month, which will increase annually by 3% subject to fair market rent increase with the um, fifth rent adjustment. The tenant will also be required to provide at its sole cost and expense seismic and facilities condition assessments. Estimated cost of procuring these studies is about a million dollars, which is additional compensation to the port. Next slide, please. Port competitively bids for development projects, retail and restaurant leases, and excursion operations. This particular location is considered an industrial maritime facility where maritime uses are given precedence. The port did not bid this lease because the site is subject to storm surge and stormwater runoff that results in periodic flood risk. 
The site is reclaimed with fill over bay mud and soil conditions of the field site cannot support additional vertical development without extensive engineering. Given these conditions, it was concluded through appraisal that the highest and best use of the property is for a continuation of the existing use. We have a stable tenant in place that is in good standing, meaning they are in compliance with their current lease and there are no outstanding issues. Port is therefore seeking recommendation of the resolution that is before you. Thank you, and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Item six, this is a resolution that approves um, a lease between the port um, and Recology as a tenant on pair 96. Uh, Recology's been at that site since at least 1998, where it operates a re recycling sorting facility. Um, the, the facility used to have a maritime component, but no longer does, as the recycling's now trucked out from that facility. Um, and we detailed the terms of the lease um, in our report. It's a, it's a six-year lease uh, with a base rent starting at $4.4 million a year, uh, which is consistent with um, an, a fair market determination provided by the port. Uh, the lease would escalate 3% a year and then reset to fair market rate at the sixth year. Uh, so we estimate the total revenue to the port would be $28.7 million. And as was noted, the Recology would pay uh, for a seismic evaluation and facility condition assessment um, at a not to exceed cost out of its own pocket of up to a million dollars, uh, which will inform uh, future use of the site. Um, I do think that this is um, a reasonable approach uh, given the short-term lease and we recommend approval of item six. Thank you. Let's go to item number seven. Good morning, Chair Chan, Supervisors Safaid and Mendelman. I'm Jennifer G, Senior Property Manager for the Port. Um, the item being presented to you today is a proposed new lease between the Port and Anderson Enterprises, also known as Anderson. Next slide. Um, in 2018, the Port entered into lease number L16471 with Anderson for their use of land and shed space at the Pier 6870 shipyard. This lease expired on October 31st and is currently on holdover status. Anderson and the Port now wish to enter into new lease agreement for a reduced footprint for initial term of three years plus three mutually agreeable one-year extension options. The proposed lease was unanimously approved by the Port Commission in October, and we are before you today seeking recommendation for the approval of new lease number L17093 between the Port and Anderson. Um, my apologies, there's a, a small error on this slide. The proposed lease includes a premises of approximately, it's actually 116,343 square feet of paved land and 2,010 square feet of shed space at the shipyard. The reduction in space is due to space needs that are needed for a potential removal and sale of the dry docks at the shipyard. Permitted activity includes vehicle storage, detailing, preparation, and pre-delivery inspections of the vehicles. The term proposed is three years plus three mutual one-year extension options. Rent is at current Port Commission approved parameter rates with annual increases. The anticipated revenue over the initial three-year term will be just over $2.4 million, 
provided Anderson exercises all extension options, the potential total revenue over the entire term is approximately $5.2 million. Uh, port staff anticipates Anderson's continued use of the premises will uh, increase rent revenues to the port while serving as a temporary activation of the Pier 6870 shipyard until a permanent maritime tenant is found. In addition, the proposed use is a continuation of existing and related uses and therefore is not subject to the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, that concludes my presentation for today, and um, I am here to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Item 7, this is a resolution that approves um, a new lease with uh, between the Port and Anderson Enterprises Incorporated as a tenant, um, mostly for paved land on pairs 68 and 70, as well as a shed. Uh, the lease has an initial three-year term with uh, three one-year options to extend. Uh, the lease is used to store vehicles uh, for this uh, car dealership. Uh, we detail the total rent to the port on page 20 of our report, which would be $2.5 million over the initial three-year term, and then $5.3 million if all the options to extend are exercised. This these, uh, lease is based on the perimeter rent set by the port. We recommend approval of item 7. Thank you. Um, I think overall, um, for item five, it was a very technical uh, uh, amendment and item. I do not have questions on that. And uh, I also appreciate the recology, item six for the recology um, lease, un even though we understand that it's not a competitive bid but we understand the longstanding relationship with Recology. Um, and then for the item three, uh, item seven, the last item, just wanted to say the error is only in the presentation. It is not in the legislation or the lease agreement. So just want to confirm that, and which is the, about the square footage, a total of square footage. I can see that in the legislation, so thank you. Um, I don't see any other name on the roster for questions. I appreciate all the presentation today, and also, of course, a lot of work that went into it together. So I, I appreciate that and thank you and we'll go to public comments for all three items. Yes, we are now opening public comment. How for any members of the public who wish to comment on the resolutions uh, as items five, six, and seven, I kindly approach the lectern. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you and seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. And colleagues, I would like to um, Move these three items uh, to full board with recommendation and a roll call, please. Oh, actually, um, Madam Chair, ahead of that vote, there was a BLA recommendation to um, on item seven, I think, to um, to amend that the resolution is retroactive to July first. Is that right? Uh, that was item seven from last week. Oh, that's right. Okay. Uh, my Which apologies. Which is retroactive. On that motion to forward all three resolutions to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Manlin. Manlin, I. Member Safai. Safai, I. Chair Chan. Chan, I. We have three eyes. And item number eight. Okay. 
Yes, item number eight is a resolution approving and authorizing the execution of a second amendment to the loan agreement with Sunnydale Infrastructure Phase One A Three LLC to increase the increase the loan amount by approximately one point five million for a new total amount a uh, new total loan amount not to exceed approx approximately twenty six point five million to finance additional construction costs for the second phase of infrastructure improvements and housing development related to the revitalization and master development of up to uh, 1,770 units of replacement public housing, affordable housing, and market rate housing, commonly known as the Sunnydale Hope SF development uh, or Sunnydale project, uh, adopting findings that the loan agreement is consistent with the adopted mitigation monitoring and reporting program under CEQA the city's general plan and the priority policies of the planning code and to authorize the director of MoCD to enter into any amendments or modifications to the agreement did not materially increase the obligations or liabilities for the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the agreement of that or this resolution madam chair thank you and today we have Go ahead, sorry, <laughs> Good morning, Chair Chan and committee members, Metalman and Safi. My name is Jason Liu, Policy Director for Community Development for the Hope SF Initiative. And I'm joined by Ryan Vines Island, Senior Project Manager at the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. We're here to present on item eight for a loan amendment to the current infrastructure phase at Sunnydale Affordable Housing Development. Uh, Sunnydale, as you all know, is a part of the Hope SF Initiative, which is a 20-year human and real estate capital commitment by the city to achieve reparations for the insidious impacts of past and ongoing trauma, systemic and institutional racism, and deep and persistent poverty. In response to diminishing federal funding for San Francisco's largest and most neglected public housing sites, Hope SF was created to build replacement high quality public housing units as well as build additional affordable and market rate units. However, chronic disinvestment by the city in these communities over many decades resulted in aging and obsolete infrastructure. To restore public benefits to Hope SF communities, new streets and sidewalks were created alongside utility infrastructure to better serve residents while also making sure that residents were able to relocate on site. We are coming before you today to amend the loan to reflect the increased costs to complete this important work. Thank you, Jason. Good morning, uh, Chair and committee members. Again, my name is Ryan Van Zyland, Senior Project Manager with MoCD. The purpose of the resolution before you today is to approve affordable housing infrastructure financing for Sunnydale Infrastructure Phase 1A3 to complete construction later this year. Item number eight authorizes a loan increase of roughly $1.5 million for a total loan of up to $26,567,405 due to unexpected costs and delays from extreme weather in early 2023, unforeseen conditions, and a temporary power connection. The Sunnydale Hope SF Master Plan seeks to redevelop the 775-unit Sunnydale Velasco public housing sites into a mixed-income community of roughly 1,770 units with new streets, infrastructure, and open space. Sunnydale Infrastructure Phase 1A3 is the second infrastructure phase at Sunnydale Hope SF, as seen here with the red arrow, and is sponsored by Related California and Mercy Housing California. The infrastructure area is roughly four acres and will include the new Block One Community Center, two affordable housing buildings totaling 170 units, and public right-of-ways. As previously mentioned, the resolution before you today is for an additional amount of roughly $1.5 million. 
This brings the total development costs for the infrastructure project to up to $26.6 million. This infrastructure phase 1A3 is expected to finish later this month or December with the community center opening next fall and the two affordable buildings online in early 2025. Uh, we are happy to answer any questions. I have representatives from the sponsors here as well and look forward to your comments. Thank you. Thank you. Item eight is a resolution that approves an amendment to the city's existing loan agreement with Sunnydale Infrastructure Phase 183 LLC. It increases the loan amount that the board approved in 2022 from $25.1 million to $26.6 million. Uh, we detailed the reasons for the changes on pages 26 and 27 of our report. You can see that there's a couple different reasons for this loan increase. One is due to whether the, uh, the construction didn't fully anticipate um, the, the extent of the rainy season. The construction also started later than was originally planned for, which pushed the construction period into the rainy season um, and you know, caused those delays. There was a requirement to, for the developer to install temporary power to the construction site due to delays in, from PG&E and providing the permanent power to that site. And then there were a host of other unforeseen conditions or um, errors on the city's part that caused uh, re re required rework. This um, loan increase also includes about $200,000 in relocation costs uh, because the project's delayed by about, this phase of it is delayed by about a year. Uh, so I do think some of this was avoidable. Some of it was probably not avoidable. I know that the, the department is now considering uh, minimizing or delaying construction during the winter rainy season. It's also uh, revisiting its stormwater management plan because the flooding at that site, the, the, the plan for this site was inadequate given the um, flooding that occurred. Uh, we also note a couple policy considerations. Uh, one is that there's, there's about $500,000 of costs here for a temporary power connection uh, the PUC is going to reimburse a portion of that. This loan increase assumes no reimbursement, but there is still a negotiation happening between PUC and MOCD about the final amount of the reimbursement. And secondly, uh, there's no cost sharing with the developer. We've raised this in, uh, on, uh, for other, and uh, when the department has come, when their construction projects have exceeded budget, the board has approved loan increases. Either there's, there was one on Treasure Island a couple years ago for the rain on that modular housing uh, that needed to be redone, and then there were two earlier this year uh, where the financing um, was undermined by PG&E delays, and then the city had to provide additional gap financing. Uh, so approving this loan increase is consistent with those prior actions, but I do just want to note that there hasn't even been a conversation about sharing these costs with the developer, uh, as far as I know. We do have a couple recommendations here. Uh, for number one, the board to request a report back from MOHCD and PUC about the final reimbursement amount uh, that will offset the cost of this loan. And then also for those two departments to enter into a, an agreement to avoid future uncertainty about who's gonna bear uh, power connection costs um, on affordable housing projects going forward. Thank you, Supervisor Safayi. 
Thank you. Um, <clears throat> can you go back to the screen that shows the different phases and where you are? I kind of went through that quickly, and I, and I understand we've had a lot of conversations about this. Yeah. So can you highlight the, I mean, so I guess the areas that are, circ, I mean, outlined in different colors, pink, orange, and blue, those are the areas that actually are being built right now? So where the arrow is right now, outlined mm -hmm. in blue, that's the phase 1A3 we're talking about today. Just below that in red, where it says block six, that's been complete, that infrastructure phase is done, that building is up. To the left of the blue shaded area is um, <laughs> that kind of Z-shaped uh, phase. That's phase three, that's the future infrastructure phase. That's currently in demolition and pre-development right now. Um, but that would be the future infrastructure phase. And what's the, what's the total cost or what's the total projected cost to finish out the entire amount and what's the timeline on that? For the entire Sunnydale site? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we, I can get you the numbers for our projections for the cost amounts, but in terms of time, we're probably looking at anywhere from eight to 15 years for the entire site. But that so includes the, so everything. So the remainder of the site is just, is, I mean, the, the, there's current buildings on the site. Correct. Some areas that you've demolished and removed, and then there's others that are completely boarded up. Uh, yes, so in the Z-shaped phase three that's outlined in orange right there, those are being demolished right now. So there's no, well, we're in the process of demolishing those units. Everything to the west of that that have those buildings, that's what the future buildings will look like. Right now there are currently mm -hmm. public housing residents there in the public housing buildings. Right. Mm -hmm. So when will these different phases, when will those three be done? The one including the orange. So the one in orange, we're, we're planning to start the infrastructure proper, uh, I guess you could say, uh, by May, June next year. And then depending on financing schedules with the state and tax credits, that's when we can apply for funding for the affordable parcels that you could see as block nine on the northern site and block seven, which is a little below that. Mm -hmm. Right now we're projecting a 2026 construction start date for those two affordable buildings. Mm -hmm. And then the buildings to the west of that, um, the timeline really depends on the financing schedules from the state, from the city, and from tax credits. We're estimating eight to 15 years, but because of those different schedules and challenges in the past, that is still up in the air. And so how many units will actually be reconstructed by 2025? How many will you have reconstructed? Doing some quick math. Um, 170 in blocks 3A and 3B. Block six right there has... 392 by 2025. It feels like a long time to build 400 units because I know we're doing it in phases all over the city. What, what do you think is the biggest impediment? Why, why is this taking so long? One of the biggest challenges is financing, um, for sure. Um, a lot of the Hope SF projects, by virtue of the unit size, um, are 
not as competitive for tax credits, which has been a challenge in the past. Uh, so that's something we're working with for Sunnydale Hope SF and Potrero Hope SF as well. Um, I would also say when you some, say the unit size, so you're you're constructing what three units? Uh, a lot of the a lot of these units contain three and four bedrooms, uh, which across the city for a lot of our affordable housing projects that's more un, uncommon. Mm -hmm. um, but this is because we are providing. Um, uh, as part of the reparations initiative for Hope SF, we want to create the larger bedroom sizes so that families that are currently in these public housing sites can remain there uh, with the family sizes they have. Mm -hmm. I would say, similar to this infrastructure project, there have been delays with, with permitting and acquiring the street improvement permits. Um, that has been an ongoing challenge with this, this entire Sunnydale Hope SF project and other Hope SF projects as well. Um, but with each new phase, we have lessons learned, um, and we adjust contingencies accordingly to make sure that we're properly planning ahead for the next one. So acquiring permits has slowed, acquiring city permits has slowed down the process? It has, historically, yes. And, and do you have someone from the city that is a main point person to kind of interact with the other different city agencies? We, at MoCD, we have our construction team, which for these projects, we have an infrastructure task force that's made up of OEWD, Department of Public Works, um, and they interact frequently with other city agencies like DBI um, and PUC. Those teams do meet, if not every week, every other week to try and facilitate coordination. But like I said, with these infrastructure projects, there's always lessons learned and, and especially like this with the severe weather we had for phase 1A3, we'll be incorporating some of these lessons learned into say the future stormwater plan to try and mitigate the costs and delays to the project moving forward. The reason I ask is because if 100% if affordable public housing rebuild can't get facilitation and support from other different city agencies, then no project in the city can. And I think that's a, that's a bad sign for the city when we're in so much need of this housing and this affordable housing that the city is an impediment rather than facilitating this moving in a, in a faster manner. I, one of the things that BLA mentioned was the two of the projects in my district that had to do with a temporary power or permanent uh, upgrade on power. Project managers did not anticipate or factor that into the equation. They then had to come back and ask us for additional cost. The transformer ended up being three blocks away, which added significant cost to the project. Is the, is the electrical upgrades and the transformer upgrades, even though this is being done in phases, is it being anticipated so that you're planning for the future so you're not having to go through this every time? Because what it feels like is even though you're, it's in phases, it feels like nine or 10 different projects all on the same site because they're going through the application process for funding, mm -hmm. you're going through the infrastructure projects, you're going through the entitlements all over again. Is there a way that it could be done to get entitlements and anticipating some of this work in advance rather than having to go through it every single time that could help facilitate the work so, and speed it up? Mm -hmm. How the permit process works, we're trying to, part of the reason there was this delay related to the PUC and PG&E um, coordination was we were trying to permanently power a, basically kind of the eastern side right there, but those delays 
caused this temporary connection which we needed, which is the extra money here. For encapsulating the entire site, um, obviously it's challenging because on the western side you still have public housing sites there, so it's difficult to do construction work while people are still living there. Um, I can't speak to how PUC would want to, I, I don't know, um, kind of create a plan bigger than building by building moving forward, but we're definitely open to exploring that. Okay, I'll just end with this. I know that this is about financing and I'm, I'm very supportive of this project and very excited. Started the work on Hope SF when Mayor Gavin Newsom was first running for mayor, so I've been very much involved in this for now, I guess, two decades. So to hear that it's another eight to 10 years, I mean, that will ultimately end up being uh, probably about 30 years it will take from conception to financing to redevelopment to building. But I think ultimately, I think the, the net gross of, of units is, is significant, and even, even in terms of this is the largest public housing site in the entire city and county of San Francisco. And I know a number of the units, because they were built as temporary uh, war worker housing, even some of them to this day don't have showers in them. They just have tubs. So I mean, imagine being in that kind of environment. Um, so I, I really appreciate the hard work you all are doing. I was just trying to ask questions to determine, is there something more the city can do to help facilitate? So to hear that having issues requiring permits from the city um, for 100% public housing rebuild is, is frustrating to hear because we should be doing better to support this project um, and facilitating this in the best way we can. So thank you, Madam Chair. I'll add my name as a co-sponsor, and if there's anything we can do, we're happy to help facilitate. Thank, thank you, you, Vice Chair Mandelman. Thank you, Madam Chair. Please add me as a co-sponsor. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the effort, of course, and and um, I think that there is kind of, it's what the budget legislative analyst has mentioned that some are avoidable and some clearly are not, such as weather. Um, what I want to understand is, do we have SFPUC here today? No, I don't think we have um, anyone from SFPUC. Uh, is there a commitment that from uh, Mayor's Office of Housing to um, really have a conversation? As, you, as we see that this is, you're not done uh, with the project. You're not having even started it yet. So are there any, and we know that from historic developments that we have, you know, be it parks, be it recreation centers, and in this case, affordable housing developments that we time and time again have issues with PG&E. Mm -hmm. And so is there a conversation and like the budget and legislative analysts is recommending between MOCD and SFPUC to figure out a shared cost model uh, as, at least for, very, for the very least for this project. We're very much open to that. I think our construction team and PUC are in conversations frequently, and so I, we're open to exploring that. I would appreciate the commitment and that uh, will it be possible to have the commitment to say, according to the BRA report as well, that you will be able to come back um, I think the recommended time period here is within 30 days. Will you be able to report back 
within 30 days before the year end to, to kind of let us know exactly what uh, you have agreed to when moving forward when it comes to share costs around PG&E? So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the two BLA points were the 30-day timeline was to get the number for the reimbursement from PUC, which we are absolutely committed to. We're very close as it is. Um, with the cost-sharing agreement, we, I, uh, we're open to exploring that. We would have to talk to PUC, but we can follow up, obviously, as needed. And, and I think, I, I guess, let me be more specific. I, I don't expect that to have the agreement done within 30 days, but to be able to say, yes, now we're going to be actively engaging in a conversation to have potentially an, an agreement, share costs an agreement, and we will subsequently report back in, within this time period to tell us we do have it or we will not be proceeding to have a cost share. I, I, uh, I hope that makes sense. Yes, we could give okay. it to that. Thank you. Great, and with that, colleagues, I am going to open this item to public comment. Yes, members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item number eight, uh, please approach the lectern and I'll start your time. So it is a big project that has been going on for a long time, according to what you say. I think uh, um, the general thing is that you should fix what is there don't destroy, fix, you have the money to fix, and then in the meantime, you know if you still need to build something new, because then you, you, you will have tried your best to fix what is there. Don't destroy, that's enough. For the, you know. Thank you much for addressing this committee. And Madam Chair, we have no further speakers. Great, seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed, and we'd like to move this item to full board. Uh, with recommendation, um, and now that we actually have the commitment um, to hear back and report back for the 30 days uh, reimbursement, as well as whether, let us know that, whether there will or will not be a cost sharing agreement between MOXCD and um, uh, SFPUC. Thank you, and roll call, please. And on that motion. Uh, to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. The motion passes. And Mr. Clerk, please call item number 9 and 10. Item numbers 9 and 10 are resolutions authorizing the issuance and sale of one or more series of bonds and approving related documents, including official statements, bond purchase agreements, and continuing disclosure certificates and determining other matters in connection therewith as defined in the respective resolutions. Item number nine supplements board resolution number 7-17 to authorize the issuance and sale of one or more series of bonds by the city and county's infrastructure and revitalization financing district number one, Treasure Island, in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed 10 million, approving the affirmation of related documents and one or more supplements uh, to indentures of trust. Item number 10 authorizes the issuance and sale of one or more series of special tax bonds for city and county's community facilities district number 2016-1, a treasure island, with respect to its improvement area number two, in an aggregate principal amount not to exceed 17 million, approving the aforementioned related documents, and first supplement to fiscal agent agreement and continuing disclosure undertaking. Madam Chair. Thank you, and today we have uh, Treasure Island Development Authority as well as uh, Controller's Office of Public Finance here, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. 
Thank you, Chair Chan and, and Supervisors. Good morning, my name is Jamie Carubin. I am the Finance Manager at the Treasure Island Development Authority, and I will be presenting the first set of slides and, be, and then eventually turning it over to my colleague at the Controller's Office of Public Finance, Bridget Katz. Before the committee today for your consideration and approval uh, are two um, authorizing resolutions. Uh, first, for the special tax bonds or the Community Facilities District on Treasure Island is a resolution, resolution to authorize the issuance of special tax bonds in the amount not to exceed $17 million. Uh, the second set of bonds, or the tax increment revenue bonds, related to the Infrastructure Revitalization and Financing District, or what we call the IRFD, uh, will authorize the issuance of tax increment revenue bonds in a not to exceed amount of $10 million. Um, not before the committee today, but we'll be returning at a future date, is an ordinance appropriating, appropriating a portion of the IRFD bonds in the amount of $1.54 million um, that will, uh, currently they're on, uh, it's on a 30-day hold and will return uh, to the committee for future approval. Slide three is a snapshot of the milestones of the CFD and IRFD on Treasure Island. Um, and the financing districts and past issuance schedules. Um, over the term of 2020 through 2022, uh, the um, Treasure Island Development Authority and with assistance of the um, Controller's Office of Public Finance issued three series of CFD bonds, uh, totaling approximately $84 million. And the first series of IRFD bonds in the fall of 2022, approximately $29 million for a total amount of $113 million. Uh, for your consideration today is the fourth issuance of the CFD bond in support of the project and the second series of IRFD bonds um, for Treasure Island. Uh, the expectation uh, is for these bonds to price and close before the end of calendar year, so before the end of December. And these two bond issuances will allow the project to continue its momentum and provide the funding needed to support the ongoing infrastructure work and support of, of housing development. Slide four is just a quick update um, on the progress of infrastructure development on Treasure Island. We are very proud and happy to share that we've reached notice of completion uh, for critical utility and street infrastructure on Treasure Island Stage 1, as well as Yerba Buena Island, consisting of um, roadway, soil stabilization, water storage, electrical switchyard, and pump uh, station facilities, as well as certain TIDA assets that will remain under TIDA's jurisdiction. Uh, we are also very proud to say that we have completed and the city has accepted uh, the first public park located on Yerba Buena Island called the Rocks Dog Park. Uh, it's been accepted by the city and is now open to the public. Uh, ferry service began um, in early 2022, as well as a completion of uh, Bay Bridge Freeway on-ramps um, in 2016, as well as 2023. Uh, we're also uh, looking forward to upcoming improvements, um, as well as a notice of completion on certain public parks, the waterfront plaza, and certain stormwater pump station facilities. Um, on the housing front, there's a lot to be um, excited and proud about um, uh, as it relates to the production of, of, of affordable and market rate housing on Treasure Island and Yerba Buena Island. Uh, in June of 2022, we welcomed our first residence in the Bristol Condominium, which is a 124 co condo building located on Yerba Buena Island. 
Um, in May of 2023, we celebrated the opening of Maceo May Apartments, which was co-developed by Swords to Plowshares, as well as Chinatown CDC. Um, it was 105 um, 100% affordable um, housing project that supported formerly homeless and low-income veterans and their families. Under current construction today is 138 um, 100% affordable housing um, building called Starview Court, which is being developed by Mercy Housing, and that's scheduled for completion in late 2024. There are also actively 600 other units under construction, um, which are all scheduled for completion by early 2025. So that brings our kind of approximate total of nearly 1,000 units complete by early 2025, um, and that is on its way for the, for the full uh, development target of 8,000 units. Again, these bonds will help continue uh, the financing plan and keep the engine going um, on this development. Uh, so the next two slides are actually not directly related to the IRFD or CFD bonds, um, but we did want to provide an update of ongoing conversations that we're having um, between Treasure Island developer um, with assistance of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Uh, to continue the great work that's happening on Treasure Island, uh, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development has been taking the lead on reviewing ways we can support the project and continue the momentum on future phases. Uh, the goals of this effort are really to first uh, look at our agreements that were originally adopted in 2011 and modernize them so, and make them more commensurate with other development agreement projects uh, today. Um, that will reflect certain changes in city policies, economic conditions, and emergent island needs uh, compared to what was originally um, in the 2011 agreement. Uh, the overarching goal is to continue to deliver the community benefits and affordable housing that were initially committed um, in the 2011 agreements, but make them more in alignment with the, the reality of the development today. Um, also, a, a, a very important uh, goal is, and that we want to underscore through this process, is the improvement of city process and reviewing on permitting and infrastructure. Um, to be good partners uh, with the development team and ensure that uh, the project uh, can continue um, uh, as ex expeditiously as possible. Um, in order to support um, these goals, uh, there is a, a consideration of accelerating um, city fiscal resources, um, and that would swiftly advance the production um, of infrastructure for phase two and for future phases. Uh, it could also assume a potential assumption of the city of taking on certain targeted um, infrastructure that was assigned to the developer under the original DDA. Um, and then there is a, a last bit of, of a goal to, to really look at um, TIDA's uh, relationship with the project and look at ways that we can restructure TIDA's budget uh, to help support um, the project, but also to help support the Treasure Island neighborhood to really treat it as a neighborhood of San Francisco and not just a development site. Uh, slide seven really discusses the how we intend to meet these goals, uh, and there are a few um, project amendments under consideration. Uh, to improve the project delivery, um, uh, the first sort of bucket or subset of amendments really speak to um, the alignment and sequence of uh, certain um, development um, deadlines. Uh, and so 
uh, the goal is to really look at the schedule of performance um, and align the developer's obligation to build certain public benefits um, to be more reflective of what the future of reality looks like today. That will involve, um, again, amending the actual deadlines for the schedule of performance, as well as building in additional subsidies and flexibilities, I'm sorry, flexibilities into the subsidies um, that would allow um, us to meet our transportation and our school goals, uh, but again, to be more reflective of, of the outline um, or the timeline of, of the development. Um, as I mentioned on the earlier slide, there is a consideration for certain fiscal measures, and that could increase the city's um, investment through certain debt instruments or expanded tax increment allocations that will allow us to quickly repay the developer. Um, for eligible infrastructure expenditures, as well as support the ongoing project momentum um, for the production of infrastructure and housing in future phases. Um, we also intend to um, work uh, to, to look at Titus budget and reorient city services and responsibilities that uh, Treasure Island and um, YBI currently operate and ensure that the neighborhood is serviced on par uh, with other city neighborhoods. Um, and lastly, as, as was sort of alluded in the prior item, um, the city serves as a critical uh, partner in development, and so we're looking at amending um, certain city agreements, such as the interagency cooperation agreement, to conform with best practices and establish escalation uh, decision protocols to really streamline work um, and decision making. Um, slide eight is just a snapshot of uh, the boundaries of both the IRFD district and the CFD district in which we collect uh, tax increment and special tax bonds. Um, slide nine focuses just on the CFD. Um, to a reminder for this committee that the CFD bonds are secured by a pledge of special taxes under improvement area number two, which consists of the five parcels C3.4, C2.2, C2.3, C2.4, and B1. Um, the aggregate uh, annual debt surface uh, is sized with a coverage ratio of 110% um, on uh, parcels that are considered developed or who have received a building permit, which allows us to tax them the CFD taxes. Um, though that debt service and those taxes escalate by 2% a year. Um, and specific to just this CFD series, um, the, uh, with recommendation from our financing team um, that works in close coordination with the Controller's Office of Public Finance, recommended an additional special tax reserve fund, uh, which is tied uh, to a release date um, that is released once uh, a specific project, which is building one, parcel building one, um, commences construction, and that is just an additional risk mitigation factor given that that project has received a building permit but is not currently under active construction. The use of proceeds for the CFDs um, bonds will be, uh, be used to reimburse the developer for qualified project costs, specifically for permitting and asset acceptance costs as well as pre-development costs that were supporting the public infrastructure. Uh, slide 10 is just a, a snapshot of the five parcels 
um, that will be securing the CFD bonds. Um, again, the, the bonds are secured only by the four developed parcels, and there is a supplemental reserve uh, tied to the subblock B1. Um, the very far column to the right um, shows that the value to lien is 5.5, and that meets the city's policy to meet or exceed a 3 to 1 value to lien ratio. The IRFD bonds um, are sized to the current year's assessed value and tax increment available um, within the project areas. Uh, as a reminder to this committee, the city has pledged a portion of the incremental ad valorem property taxes. Um, a portion of that net available increment um, is uh, obligated to, to reimburse the, the developer for certain facilities and building infrastructure. And a second portion um, is dedicated to the financing of affordable housing. Uh, the remaining balance um, of the 8% serves as an additional coverage ratio, um, sorry, an additional amount um, for coverage. Um, and if that is not needed, it returns to the general fund. The IRFD bonds on the facility side are expected to reimburse the developer for qualified project costs, specifically geotechnical work that's been incurred to date. And the housing bonds um, are planned to be a source of pre-development loan um, for a 150-unit affordable housing project on Treasure Island that is to be uh, constructed by John Stewart Company and Catholic Charities. Uh, that project is anticipated to commence in November of 2026 and completed in June of 2028. I will now turn the slides over to my colleague, Bridget Katz. Hello, Supervisors. I'm Bridget Katz, Deputy Director for the Office of Public Finance. The next two slides summarize the estimated financing terms for the proposed CFD and IRFD bonds. Um, to start, for the CFD, based on tax-exempt market conditions as of October 23rd, uh, we estimate the, that the CFD bonds will have a final maturity um, in 2052 with an estimated true interest cost of approximately 6.6%, uh, project fund amount of $11.8 million, financing costs of 766000 and estimated total debt service over the life of the financing of $32.6 million. For the IRFD, uh, the bonds will be structured with annual level debt service and coverage of 125% from pledged tax increment. Um, similarly, based on tax-exempt market conditions as of October 23rd, we estimate 30-year financings with a combined true interest cost of 6.4%, total project fund of 7.1 million, financing costs estimated at 678,000, and total debt, so debt service over the life of the bonds estimated at 19.6 million. Both the CFD and IRFD bonds will be sold without a rating or as non-rated. The preliminary official statements or primary disclosure documents for each transaction details the risks associated with each of the financings. Given the early stage real estate nature of these financings, we wanted to highlight a few of those risks, which include adverse changes in the local real estate market, reduction in uh, tax base and property values, concentration of property ownership, 
and the potential impacts that would result from the failure to develop properties. As a reminder, the CFD and IRFD bonds are not obligations of the city's general fund. They are secured by special tax revenues from improvement area two and uh, the pledged tax increment. Additionally, for the CFD, um, the city has covenanted to pursue judicial foreclosure in the event that certain um, delinquency thresholds are met. And this slide, um, just a reminder, the Board of Supervisors is the governing body for both the CFD and IRFD and have a responsibility under federal securities law to ensure that staff is aware of any material information that may impact the financings that is not already disclosed in the POS. So that concludes our presentation. Thank you for your time. Tida and OPF would be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, I really appreciate it. It's a, a lot of technical work and I always really appreciate just walking us through um, with that BOA report for item number nine specifically. Yes, this is um, item nine, a resolution approving up to $10 million in bonds uh, secured by property taxes generated within the Treasure Island Infrastructure Revitalization and Financing District that was previously approved by the Board of Supervisors. We detail the use of these bonds on page 35 of our report. The transaction is expected to generate approximately $8.4 million, excuse me, $8.3 million, 6.9 of which will be provided to the Treasure Island developer to repay it for geotechnical work that has already been undertaken. And then $1.4 million will be used uh, for an affordable housing project the appropriation of which will be subject to board approval. Um, and if the loan, if there's gap financing or other kinds of city loans to that project that exceed $10 million, it will likely require board approval as well. Based on data provided by the Office of Public Finance, we show in our report the total cost of this transaction is about $19.6 million over the 30-year life of the bonds. We recommend approval. Thank you, and just on the record, I just want to um, clarify as well, for item nine, it was introduced two weeks ago, and or more than two weeks ago, and, and that we're able to have the budget and legislative analyst report. Um, for item 10, though, it was uh, introduced on November uh, 7, so just within a week's time that I appreciate the clerk's office to support us to be able to create the file and have this to be agendized. Um, but I just want to be on the record that typically any any items that actually bear the fiscal uh, impact um, to the city that will have a standard of two weeks of of just posting and announcing the items before it actually agendized in, in, the, in the committee uh, for both transparency and allowing the public to be notified um, that this item has been announced or introduced and that they could evaluate as well. And, and most importantly, if need be, join public comments and you know, express their feedback and concerns. Um, but with that said, that the item nine is closely tied to item 10, uh, that, uh, that the authorizing issuance of the special bond, um, it's really a technical item to um, 
so that allow us to continue uh, with the work that is being done and as articulated and listed in item nine, um, in which now have received a recommendation for approval by the budget and legislative analysts. And with that, I am comfortable moving both items full to full board with recommendation today. Um, and I also just take a quick look of our deputy city attorney just to make sure that we're on the same page and there's no concern. Uh, but I just urge everyone, you know, um, not just for you, but just everyone in, in city government and city departments, uh, be aware that, you know, I think it is best that we abide by that rule of two weeks of noticing for this committee, again, with truly this is significant fiscal impact. Um, so with that said, I don't see any um, name on the roster for question. So I would like to go to public com comments for these two items. Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who have joined us today. Uh, who wish to speak on both these items nine and ten to approach the lectern. Last before lunch, uh, this presentation was incredibly boring, but I'm sorry. Treasure Island, uh, your goal, because you said goals, 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 it's great. Your goal is to make something beautiful. That's it. Beauty. So then you can even rename Treasure Island Beauty Island. It's perfect. But then you can't fake beauty, so you see, it's like, you can't fake it. So you have to be uh, real and uh, don't build any buildings which are like uh, rabbit cages or something because it sounds... Okay, be aware of the technology you put there too because that's not the future. Beauty, bye. Madam Chair, there are no further speakers. Thank you, seeing no more public comments. Public comment is now closed. Um, I just recognize the fact that it is incredibly boring work, and but it is incredibly technical work that is so critical, and it's the reason why this whole room of people, just a few of us, that um, I am just so grateful for everyone's work here. Um, and um, with that said, I, we do not have, uh, I, I will make the motion to move these two items with positive recommendation uh, and a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward both resolutions and items ten, 9 and 10 to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you, and the motion passes. And just wanted to uh, say that we do not have a Budget and Finance Committee uh, meeting next Wednesday uh, for our Thanksgiving break. <laughs> It's my way of expressing thanks <laughs> for this boring, except very critical and technical work that everybody do here in this under the dome every day. For that, I'm so grateful. I wish everyone here a very happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your time. Hopefully have time off, a very well-deserved time off. And Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before us? Uh, Madam Chair, that concludes our business. Thank you, and the meeting is adjourned.